you have your copy of God's Word, you can open up to John 16. Earlier this week, there was a, a, a newspaper article highlighting that uh, several Oxford University students have, have begun to rate local churches in their air, area concerning uh, how, uh, is the word that they use, how safe they are for uh, gay and, and transgender Christians. And these Oxford students awarded scores of one to five uh, for these churches after analyzing sermons and and blog posts and and going and speaking to uh, worshipers there in those churches. And one of the the LGBT rights campaigners uh, who sits on the the Church of England's uh, General Senate said that she hoped uh, that the exceptionally important project would be, in her words, replicated by grassroots groups across the country. So she is hoping for you know this type of rating and, and judgment to to permeate uh, her her country and uh, usually what stays or begins in one country doesn't just stay in that country uh, it, it permeates and, and spreads uh, outward uh, and so you know these these rankings were were given from from one to five one being the, the lowest and, and five being the, the highest uh, a level one. Uh, it's described in this article, uh, would be a, probably a church where there is a public teaching calling homosexuality sinful. And there's likely to be, uh, to use the, the clobber passages to argue that any form of homosexual act within a same-sex marriage or otherwise uh, is a form of sexual immorality and are likely to use this as a means of arguing for celibacy or conversion to a heterosexual lifestyle. It's also likely that trans and non-binary people are not openly affirmed. That would be a a level one uh, on their scale. Uh, And so they they also kind of color-coded this according to to traffic lights. So in in their categorization, that would be a, a red light church uh, and uh, we, we won't talk about the, the yellow lights but let's this is their assessment of what would be a, a, a consistent of a, a green light church uh, those were the, the numbers uh, over the score of four or a five the so score for a, a four would be this is a church where there's at least some public support where LGBTQ plus people uh, and probably a specific public welcome and leaders are likely to be prepared to voice their affirmation, and they may occasionally preach or write a blog or magazine article to explain their theological position. And there may well be uh, LGBTQ plus people in the congregation and in positions of leadership and agencies and resources which offer LGBTQ plus people support and allyship may be linked to and promoted. So that's a level four, green light church. Number five, highest ranking, probably a church that has internalized a queer identity. And it may be that a large number of LGBTQ plus people attend or even that they started or lead the church uh, and straight and cis people attend as part of the diversity of the church rather than the assumed norm. If someone were to speak against inclusivity, others would be very likely to defend it. LGBTQ plus relationships and milestones uh, would be publicly celebrated at those you know, safe green light churches. So it was it was, it was sobering to to read that article in terms of, you know, kind of think through hypothetically yeah down the road there will eventually be you know names taken down and, and there will be a, a kind of lists made of who who is in support and who is not in support of the the new uh, ideology of our world uh, and 
really what we what we see here is kind of the, the beginning of a, a new a new secular inquisition right because we talked about that that lgbtq advocate what was her hope that this would become a grassroots movement where there's all of these lists and, and scores uh, and, and proclamations about who who is in line with the agenda and who's not in line with the agenda and you're kind of hearing that this week to a certain extent you're I'm kind of caught off guard, and I'm like, I just don't want to hear some of this. Like, I, I have enough trouble dealing with my own sin, right? I have, I have enough trouble dealing with uh, interpersonal conflict and, and re- relational issues. And I know I'm not alone in these things, right? Am I the only one here battling with sin and battling with conflict uh, with other sinners? Uh, and then, the, you know, news like this comes in from the world, and I'm just like, this is, this is kind of overwhelming. Like, what, what, do I, what do I focus on? Like, you know, I have my, my, my uh, spiritual whack-a-mole mallet, and I'm ready. You know, I'm like, okay, here's my own heart. I've got to hit that. And then, uh, you know, here's this conflict. Okay, don't hit, don't hit that. I want to, but uh, let, me, let, me, uh, you know, let me interact with this person, you know, differently. And then, and then there's the, the world around me. And how do, how do I deal with all of this? Uh, and I know it seems like, there's moments where no one else has had to deal with these things throughout all of church history. You know, th- this level of, you know, just ugliness and, and murkiness of life. And I was thinking through all of that. And I started to return to my, my study. And, and honestly, as, as, we, as we've been working our way through John 15 and now into 16, this is exactly what Jesus has been, has been addressing. Right? That, that this battle of... Uh, you know, wrestling against our own sin, he, he has an exhortation to that. The beginning of chapter 15, he says, "We are to abide in Him, right? Rather, rather than going our own way, pursuing our own desires. You ever pursued your own desires and it had it just end in an absolute mess? Right? Am I the only one that's done that as well? Jesus says, "Abide in Me." Don't turn anywhere else. Remain right here with what I'm commanding, what I'm instructing. That tells us how we're to, to battle against the flesh. What about in those conflicts with other people? Right? Because that happens. We're, we're living in a, in a world of sinners. I'm one, you're one. And we have interactions. Well, what am I to do in those, in those times where there's conflict? Well, he addresses that as well. Because right after he tells the disciples that they are to abide in him, what does he say? He says that you are to love one another. Now, that in our character, in our conduct, it's going to be difficult. Uh, but, but the overwhelming response to one another, especially within the church, to extend love, compassion, patience, mercy. So he's addressed those first two. And then, then he begins to, to address how the disciples are to, to interact with the world. Right? And, and this is where sometimes we just want to put our heads in the, the sand I just want to kind of deal with what I'm dealing with right now. But the world is still out there. And we can't ignore what is taking place in the world. And so Jesus, as, uh, as he's, again, preparing his disciples for his departure and continuing with what he has uh, said in the past about the world's hostility, now he's going to kind of specifically uh, make some pronouncement about how the, the world is going to interact with them and how we are to respond. Now, what I want to look at this morning is chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Jesus says in verse 1, These things I have spoken to you, so that you may be kept from stumbling. 
They will put you out of the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they did not know the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So there's, a, there's an element here where Jesus is, is outlining for his disciples specifically what they need to know uh, to respond to the, the world's persecution. As the world threatens them and, and comes after them, how are they to respond? And, and the tactics of the world and of Satan haven't really changed uh, over the course of 2,000 years. Uh, and so you and I can be instructed by these things as well. Not only concerning the tactics of the world, but also how are you and I to respond to this knowledge? We've been given uh, uh, information here. What do we need to do with this? And it's important to know how does, how does Jesus prepare his disciples uh, to go out and to, to live in a hostile world? How does he encourage them and prepare them to face persecution? So we, we, we need to take note of that, and then we ourselves need to be prepared in the same way. And in these verses, Jesus is going to make four pronouncements to his disciples and to us uh, that are going to help us prepare for what we don't want to have to be prepared for, right? Does anyone want to have to prepare for persecution? No, no one's like, hey, what do I want to do this week? But, but we have to be prepared. We have to be equipped for this. And Jesus knew that. And that's why he's taking this time with the 11 before he goes from them. And I have to say these things to you. So we're going to see these four pronouncements that he gives to them. The first one is in verse 1. And what we're going to see is he's going to, to give a pronouncement about really his biggest concern. To these things I have spoken to you. So we're, we're seeing uh, his concern behind the words. What is he saying and why is he saying it? So I'm saying these things to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. The idea here is that you may be kept from being scandalized. And the, the, the Greek word be, behind this, the noun is kind of a, in the noun form, it would be an action or a circumstance that would lead one to act contrary to a proper course of action or set of beliefs. So a circumstance where you do something that you ought not to do. And the verb would be to, to cause somebody to, to come to a downfall. Right? You're the occasion where someone else sins. This same word is used in, in Luke chapter 17. It says, Now he said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. If you cause others uh, to be scandalized, to step into sin... Now, there's a tremendous judgment that comes into that. And the clearest example uh, that we see in Scripture is back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, where the serpent is a stumbling block to who? To Eve. He, he leads her, he tempts her, he questions God's word and gets her to a point where she makes a decision uh, that's going to alter life forever. And Adam is right there and he goes along willingly with that same decision. The serpent was that occasion of stumbling. It was the occasion of a downfall for Adam and for Eve and ultimately all of humanity. This same word is used in the Greek Old Testament, kind of translating in the Hebrew. It's used in Exodus chapter 10, verse 7. And Pharaoh's servant said to him, 
Uh, How long will this man, speaking of Moses, how long will this man be a snare to us? There's our word. How long will this man be a stumbling block? Let the, let the men go that they may serve Yahweh their God. And do you not know that Egypt is, is now destroyed? So the, the servants of Pharaoh are coming alongside and saying, Moses is a stumbling block. He, he is the one who's causing our downfall. Let, let's just send him away. First Samuel uh, 18 uh, King Saul is going to say the same thing uh, and use this the same concept uh, to try to ensnare David. Uh, he's, and Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David, so they told Saul, and the thing was right in his eyes. And Saul said, I will give her to him that she may become a snare or a stumbling block to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So, so he's plotting for David's demise, and he sends in his daughter. But this word can also be used... Uh, to d- describe scandalizing to the point of giving up faith in Christ. Now, the same word is used, and in, in, in this exact uh, idea, it would be back in John chapter 6, verse 61. After Jesus' hard teaching, he says, But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling at this, he said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? Does this scandalize you? And because a good number of his disciples who are following up until that point, they depart from following after him. They're scandalized so severely that they no longer want to to follow after him. And, and Jesus is speaking now to these 11 because he doesn't want them to have a wrong expectation of what's coming. He's going to say these things in, in preparation so they have the right expectation and to know What's the worst case scenario? His greatest concern for his disciples is not that they would lose their life. That's sobering to think about. His greatest concern is not that they would lose their life, but that they would turn away from him. That is the greatest danger. That the persecution is going to come and it's going to tempt these men. They're going to be tempted. Well, if I just deny Christ, and Peter's going to do that this same night going to fall into that mindset if i just deny knowing jesus i'll make it through okay now peter's ultimately going to repent of that he's going to get a taste of what that would actually be like right and and the bitterness that would bring jesus knows all things and he knows that once the spirit comes that these 11 men they're not going to fall away they're going to remain with him and they're going to be faithful but but the biggest concern that he has and what he's communicating to them is that apostasy would be worse than death. That's what he wants them to understand. Turning away from him is a greater danger to their souls than merely their life being taken by the oncoming persecution. This is what we have seen elsewhere in Scripture. Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Even as we, we read through Revelation and the letters to the, the seven churches, Revelation chapter 2, now the, the closing exhortation, do not fear uh, what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. But he says this, be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. Death is not the worst case scenario. Apostasy is. And and that's what he's seeking to prepare his disciples for. That should be our biggest concern because that's the Lord's greatest concern. 
And so there needs to be a, a switch going on in our thinking, right? Where our priority cannot just be, I want smooth sailing in life. I want to take the path of least resistance. We talked about this morning in, in 2 Corinthians that our, our goal and our ambition, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, needs to be, to be pleasing to God. That in the circumstances where we face pushback from the world, persecution, hostility, are we going to stand strong and be faithful or are we going to give in and be faithful in the world's eyes but despised by God? Apostasy is the Lord's biggest concern. But then we see he makes another uh, another pronouncement that is intended to instruct and prepare us to face persecution. Verse 2, and we see the world's biggest threats. And they will put you out of the synagogue. There's expulsion or excommunication. To be cast out of the synagogue for a Jew would be to, uh, to be cast out of your social circle. That, that would have significant impact upon your life socially, but also economically. Right? And going back to John chapter 9, when, when the, the man who was born blind, uh, who was healed by Jesus, when he's being interrogated, they go to verify the fact that he was born blind with his parents. And his parents, what are they afraid of? They're afraid of testifying that he was born blind because that would prove that Jesus performed a miracle that no one else has ever proved. And if they, in essence, validate that Jesus performed a miracle and that he's the Messiah, they'll be kicked out of the synagogue. So, so they say, we don't know. Our son's old enough. You're like, you don't know whether your son was born blind. But, but that's the level of fear for these parents. They say, you go talk to our son. He's old enough to give an account. John chapter 12, many of the religious leaders were afraid of this. Chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees... They were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. And then here is a profound statement. For they loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God. Their greatest love dictated their decision making. Because they loved people and the praise of men, the acceptance of people, they were unwilling to act upon what they truly believed. Fear controlled them and dominated them. And this is exactly what Jesus is seeking to prepare these 11 for. That they're going to come and they're going to seek to expel you, to excommunicate you from the synagogue. You need to be ready for that. But that's not their only threat. There's going to be a second threat in verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. There's a step beyond expulsion, and that's execution. And Jesus is saying that there is going to be an hour that is coming when, when they will be permitted to do that. And they will have the, the, the power to take that into their hands. And even more than that, when, when they kill those who are following Christ, what, are they, what mindset are they going to have in that moment? That they themselves are doing an act of worship, an act of service. They're bringing an offering to God and killing those who are following after Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. Which is just loaded with irony because when somebody is martyred, who is the one who's actually worshiping? Not the murderers, but the martyr. 
And, and this is seen throughout. I mean, it begins with our Lord himself. Right? Who is it that murders Jesus? The religious leaders. And they murder him for blasphemy. They have him executed for this. The Apostle Paul is another example of this. Before his conversion says that he's breathing out murderous threats. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But then he comes to faith, and then later on he acknowledges that he was handing people over to death with zeal, thinking that he's doing the Lord's service. This has continued on throughout church history. There have been many uh, Roman Catholics who zealously executed Protestants in the centuries following the Reformation. Thomas Cranmer, who was the, the, the leader of the the Reformation, one of the leaders of the Reformation in England, he, he was publicly executed, and just prior to his execution uh, under Queen Mary, you know, a.k.a. Bloody Mary, just before his execution, there was a sermon preached. Think about that. We'll preach a sermon and then have an execution. And the Spanish Inquisition carried out many such atrocities with, with a clear conscience, thinking they were executing heretics for the glory of God. And that Inquisition began with lists of names. Who, who is not in line and who is in line? In our modern context, we see others who attack Christians from a theological motivation, a theological framework. All those uh, suicide bombers in the Muslim world, who, who do they believe that they are serving yeah, uh, they, they believe that they are glorifying Allah in, in the murder of uh, the infidels. There's a theological reason. Even violence here in the United States against Christians, it doesn't get as much attention. But the, the, there was a shooting at Covenant Presbyterian School in Nashville. Uh, and the, the shooter was a... A girl who had been at the school and she wrote a manifesto and right now there's this huge legal battle on whether or not that manifesto should be uh, publicly disseminated but the fact is there's a manifesto there is a there is a a a reason a motivation a theology even from a a secular humanist perspective uh, for uh, this kind of attack against christians and uh, that is usually suppressed or ignored in in the media But we need to be aware that at the biggest threats of the world, expulsion and execution, these are these are significant. Yes. But but we have to be convinced of that first truth, right? That apostasy is worth worse than death. Easy for me to say worse than death. And the Apostle Paul said in Philippians one to live is Christ and to die is Yeah, there's a conviction that if I die, the worst thing that happens is I go to be with him. That's exactly where I want to go anyway. I don't need to cling to this life. So there's a mindset that needs to change within my my heart and my soul. My priorities need to be transformed. And this is what Jesus is saying to the disciples. This pronouncement goes hand in hand with the first. And yet... Uh, we could say, well, why does the world go to such lengths, right? Like, why do they go to such uh, extensive uh, activity uh, to, to try to threaten expulsion and execution? Well, Jesus makes a pronouncement in, in verse 3 that outlines the, the why behind that. And, and in this, what Jesus is going to address is the world's biggest problem. So these things they will do because they did not know 
the Father or me. Recurring theme within John's gospel is Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. The end of John chapter 2 says that many were believing in his name, but he was not entrusting himself to them. He, he, they believed in Jesus, but he didn't believe in, in them. Was unwilling to, to, to see their faith as genuine because it wasn't. They loved the miracles. They loved the entertaining aspect of what Jesus was about and him coming into the world. But they didn't want to look to him as Lord and as Savior. But at the end of that, it says, Jesus had no need for anybody else to tell him what was in man because he himself knew what was in man. And he's, he's speaking this way again here. He knows exactly what is taking place in the hearts of uh, everybody in the world. Uh, and here he is explaining the, the deeper problem, the deeper issue behind uh, seeking to kill and uh, expel Christians, seeking to destroy faith. That's really the motivation. What's the motivation for expelling somebody out of the synagogue or out of society, out of our current culture? What's the, the hope of that? Of getting somebody to, to deny Christ. The, the goal is to be the stumbling block. The goal is to get somebody to be scandalized and to apostatize. But the world's biggest problem within all of this is, is ignorance and unbelief. Now, that they don't know the Father and they don't know the Son. In the, in the next chapter, 17.3, uh, Jesus is going to be praying and he's going to, he's going to be speaking, speaking to the Father. He says, and this is eternal life, verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is, this is the reality of you either know Jesus or you don't. Uh, and that hinge point is going to, uh, to determine so many things. Uh, and the world's biggest problem, the biggest issue uh, is that they don't know God the Father and God the Son. And some of that is due to ignorance. Some people have not heard, and so we need to go and proclaim. And others, uh, as we've seen in, in previous weeks, some have heard and fully know who Jesus is. He talked about this in the end of chapter 15. That there's a greater judgment for those who saw and heard and uh, beheld the miracles of Christ and yet continue to turn away, continue to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And Jesus is addressing this as the greatest problem, the greatest issue. But, but this is, well, what are we to think of this? Right? We need to, to instill within our minds that even though the world is seeking to expel and execute us, their greatest need is to know Christ. So even though they're coming after us, how are we to respond? Think about it this way. Let's use an, uh, an example from Scripture. Acts uh, chapter 15. Now, as uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, not Acts 15, but uh, I think it's going to be 16. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Philippi, he's been arrested unjustly by the officials and imprisoned. And he's there uh, in prison. And at midnight, what are him and Silas doing? They're singing. They're, they're praising. So he's been unjustly arrested, suffering injustice, and he's singing about it, rejoicing in it. And then there's an earthquake, and literally the, the, the doors are opened. He could easily just walk out of the prison. They're like, this is what I've been praying for, right? I'm delivered, right? And that was probably what most of us would do. Right? We're in jail unjustly. We grow bitter, cantankerous. But we're ready to, to just escape and bolt. But what is Paul and Silas, what do they do? The earthquake happens, and then the Philippian jailer understands that the escaped prisoners means he is dead, that he's going to face execution. And what do they do? 
the man who unjustly was holding them, they say, no, wait a second, don't do that. We need to talk to you. We need to tell you about Jesus. We need to, to introduce you to the one who has saved us. I mean, that's, that's amazing to think about, right? They understood the biggest problem that that Philippian jailer had was he didn't know God. And so what do they do? They, they proclaim the gospel. And what's the outcome? It says he and his whole household come to faith and are baptized. That's the mindset that we need to develop. Even when the world is hostile and coming after us, we testify, we proclaim, and we leave the results up to God because our goal is not to survive in this life. Our goal is what? To glorify Him. To be faithful in what He has commanded us to do. The world's biggest problem should strike a chord of compassion within our hearts. And it should lead us to be praying regularly for those who are coming after us and for those who just do not know Christ. And who knows how the Lord might use our testimony about Him. What will happen if you throw the gospel out there? Some people will scoff, some people will come after you, but some people will be saved. And some people will rejoice in that salvation. And Jesus is concerned about his disciples being scandalized and, and the world seeking to scandalize those same disciples. But he also wants them to be aware of the world's biggest problem. The world needs to come to know the Father and the Son in a saving way. And then there's a, a fourth pronouncement that he's going to, to make in verse 4. We've seen that the Lord's biggest concern, the world's uh, biggest threats, the world's biggest problem, and then the disciples' biggest lesson. Verse 4 says, But these things I have spoken to you, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. Again, Jesus is going to explain that, that what he is saying and doing right here and right now is seeking to prepare his disciples for the future. It would be really easy for the disciples to be discouraged, right? Now, how do, how do you feel when everybody is against you? When you feel that way, what do you typically do? You have a certain type of, of party, right? A pity party, right? Elijah had one of those in the Old Testament, Right? Everyone's against me. Woe is me. You know, all of it. And it's really easy to, to fall into that. And if the, the whole world uh, is coming after the disciples, especially right after uh, their Lord and Master has been uh, murdered and crucified and taken from them, they're going to be discouraged. They're, they're going to be facing temptation that we, we don't know the degree of that level of discouragement. And Jesus wants them to be aware of the opposition that they're going to face and he wants them to set the proper expectations. And in doing that, well, when Jesus forewarns them and then it comes to pass, it reminds them and shows them, wait a second, Jesus knew this was going to happen. What does that tell us about Jesus? That he knows all things. He knows the future before it happens. And it gives them courage that he, they can trust him because he knows what's going to take place. Now, he was able to predict the future with accuracy. This would increase their faith in Christ. And so rather than being weakened by the persecution, their faith is actually strengthened. That's what Jesus is seeking to do because he's preparing them ahead of time. It's amazing what preparation will, will do for you. But back in, in 2017, baseball fans are familiar with this. Uh, the, the Houston Astros won the World Series 
But, but it was a victory that was marred because afterwards it was discovered that they had an elaborate system to using uh, cameras and all of it to, to echo and relay signs from the, the extended part of the, the stadium up to the batter. And they did that by, by banging on trash cans. Uh, so if you're ever watching a Houston Astro game and someone's uh, fans from the other team are there with inflatable trash cans, it's mocking and basically calling them cheaters. But it was amazing because if the batter who's up knows even just what kind of pitch is coming, that gives him a tremendous advantage, right? To know, oh, this is a changeup or this is a slider, this is a fastball. And that helped them to win the World Series that year. Knowing what is coming gives you a tremendous advantage. And this is what Christ is doing with his disciples. He is warning them, seeking them uh, to prepare them. And ultimately we see that, that preparation enables perseverance. Uh, he's seeking to, to help them know uh, that uh, they should not be surprised by the world's hostility. They should not be discouraged by the world's hostility. And they should actually be strengthened by it because it proves what he has predicted all along. I love what J.C. Ryle says. is basically to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And if you know ahead of time what is coming, you have uh, the obligation and the ability to prepare for that. Knowing what is to come at us from the world, we are able to prepare mentally and spiritually. And that's, that's what Christ is seeking to do, both with the 11 disciples uh, on their, their way to the Garden of Gethsemane and with you and I here today. And we can stand courageously without stumbling because he has told us ahead of time what we can expect. That's the whole book of Revelation, right? We just got done reading that. Why does uh, God give us all of that information ahead of time? So we know what, where everything is going to culminate, what direction we're, all things are, are going in. But here Jesus makes these four pronouncements, and each one of them is a help to his disciples uh, to, to, to equip them to be prepared for the persecution from the world. In these pronouncements, we see the Lord's biggest concern alerts us that the apostasy that, uh, that they could experience, apostasy is worth, worse than death. And that the world's biggest threats of expulsion and execution, they lose their sting when we remember that they can do absolutely nothing to our souls. And the world's biggest problem ought to trigger evangelistic compassion in our hearts so that we see uh, those around us as lost and in need of the gospel. And lastly, we can rejoice and praise Christ for his wisdom in preparing uh, us uh, for what will come. He is equipping us ahead of time so that we know that our, strength, our, we, our faith can be strengthened, that we can follow after him in faith. Back in, in 1943, as, as General George Patton was preparing his commanders for, for combat in Italy, uh, he, he sent out a, a memo and he, he gave them 27 uh, tactical adages that, that he had kind of distilled down from the campaign that he fought in, in North Africa uh, before they invaded uh, Sicily and then Italy. And at that point, he had been in the military for 36 years. So he had a lot of experience. And he was seeking to, to impart and to prepare for his uh, commanders. And so he had this list of 27 uh, tactical adages. And number seven says, always fire low. Number 13 is in mountain warfare, capture the heights and then work downhill. And number 22, he says, in case of doubt, attack. Uh, and then his personal maxim, number 18, 
which I think is, has a lot of wisdom to it. He says, never take counsel of your fears. And so that General, General Patton is seeking to, to prepare his commanders for what is ahead. And I love what, what J.C. Ryle says about this passage and about what Jesus is doing here. He says, like a wise general, he did not conceal from his soldiers the nature of the campaign they were beginning. That he told them all that, uh, what was before them uh, in faithfulness and love. Uh, and then when the time of trial came, that they might remember his words and not be disappointed and offended. He wisely forewarned them that the cross was the way to the crown. He's seeking to prepare them. And everything that they have experienced leading up to this is about to change. Right? It's like if you were one of the disciples right here, you're like, Jesus, why didn't you tell us this before? This would have been helpful to know, right? Jesus says, well, I was, I was with you. And I'm not going to be with you in the future. So you need to know this ahead of time. Know that I care for you. Know that I'm going to continue to be with you. And know that you are able to endure what the world brings. You need to stand in faith. I pray that we would heed the pronouncements made by Christ here, that we would prepare for perseverance, and that we would act as faithful ambassadors for Christ in the midst of a hostile world. Amen.